Arlene, alcoholic. I can stop drinking. I can't stop thinking. And so the problem's always right here with me. I, when I listen to a speaker, I always like to hear a couple things from them. One is their sobriety date and the other is their age. I don't know why, but I, I am 84 years old and my sobriety date is May 9th, 1969. And I jokingly say that's a number I can remember. Uh, I don't... Um, I don't consider myself a speaker, so I ramble all over the place when I tell my story. But I usually start with um, that when I was five years old, I saw my father uh, kill my mother. And I later was able to figure out he had planned it because he had been seeing another woman for over two years who had followed us when we moved from Grand Coulee to Portland, Oregon. And uh, he married her four months after he killed my mother. And when I was seven years old and I asked him about the night my mother died, um, he lied to me about it, but he made it real clear that I was not to talk about it. Um, and he was to threaten my life uh, three more times before he passed away. And it has a lot to do with my sobriety date because when I was uh, 22 years sober, I looked for my mother's family and um, I had an uncle that for some reason, and it was probably, I think around 52 years after my mother's death, my uncle had lit, actually kept a newspaper from the time uh, my mother died and, I, and he sent it to me. And this is just a copy of part of it. Uh, and one of the reasons I uh, keep that and show it is because I have a tendency to exaggerate. Uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't call it lying, I call it embellishing. And I think it's alcoholic thinking. And I know that if somebody told me my story, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so that's why I keep that, not just to show you that my, my I'm talking a truth, but to remind me that I know what the truth is today. I'm, I'm uh, when I introduce myself, I say, I'm Arlene, I'm an alcoholic, I can stop drinking, I can't stop thinking, and I'm trying to change the way I introduce myself. And one of the reasons is because I've talked to uh, or listened to a lot of people talking about. Uh, being coerced into drinking and uh, when they're out in public with, with family or friends, one particular recently with an employee. So I want to start introducing myself as Arlene. I'm allergic to alcohol. I break out in handcuffs <laughs> because 
That's my story. That's part of my story of what my drinking was like. And, and I don't talk a lot about my drinking. I kind of jump back and forth sometimes between how the steps took me back to something that happened either in my childhood or my drinking period of time. And uh, I, uh, again, that's my sobriety date. And uh, when I came to, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 67, the first time in Houston, Texas. And in Houston, they used to say, if you don't say your sobriety date, you don't have one. So that's one reason I say my sobriety date and I put it on my name is because there are certain things that happened to me in early sobriety that still affect me. I got sober here in San Diego and uh, at the meetings, they literally read that uh, we don't call on volunteers until the last 10 minutes of the meeting because only sick people volunteer. And because of hearing that read so much in my early sobriety, when they have volunteer meetings, I can't make myself volunteer. It's that old feeling of, I know I'm sick, but I don't want to prove it. <laughs> so, uh, and then, and then the other thing that happened is that when I've gone to meetings that are only volunteer meetings, uh, it seems like the same five or six people are the ones that share, that volunteer to share. And I learned early on from my sponsor, she's, I didn't have a sponsor for two and a half years. I was so crazy, nobody wanted to sponsor me. Um, I used to bring a, um, a cat to the meeting that I went to. There was, uh, there were hard metal chairs and then there was a couch in the corner and the old timers always sat on the couch. And I was trying to get myself thrown out of AA even after I was sober a while. So I would go to that meeting early and I'd sit on the couch and stretch my cat out so the old timers couldn't sit there. Um, and they did things like they had me wash ashtrays and I didn't smoke. I've never smoked and it's I think it's one of the reasons I never got into drugs because most people that uh, smoke start out with pot and then they go to the other drugs. So I'm, I'm not a pure alcoholic, that's for sure, because I do have other addictions, but alcohol is the one that got me here and it's the main one I always had to remember. I. I've actually gone to an AA meeting almost every single day of my sobriety, and that's 53 years. There's only probably, I've never really figured it out, but I would say less than 60 days out of 53 years that I haven't gone to an AA meeting or probably even less than 60 days where somebody didn't bring bring a meeting to me when I was in, like when I was in the hospital. So 
I, uh, be, when I was drinking, I was also suicidal. I would stock up on medications and overdose. And so it was one of the issues I found I needed to deal with in my sobriety. And when I was doing an inventory on my suicide attempts, what I ended up writing was that I'd rather die than me change. And because when I got in here, I thought that I drank because of what other people were doing. It, it took me a long time to accept that it was my drinking that got me in here and that I better remember it. So when I don't know where I'm at, I'm at step one. I'm not being honest with myself, usually about my thinking. And because I like to think other people into recovery and into changing. Like I have a daughter that's 60, she smokes and she's 24 years sober but I want her to quit smoking because I want her to live long enough to take care of me. So even my best thinking is selfish. <laughs> um, just giving, anyway, I, what I wrote was I, I'd rather uh, die than me change. And that was my behind my suicide attempts. And, but I do, but I've uh, struggled with depression all my life. And a lot of it has to do with uh, when I was five years old and saw my father kill my mother because I saw her laying there in a pool of blood. And for years, I saw an image of my mother laying in a pool of blood. And I wasn't going to tell anybody that because I was sure if I told anybody, they had locked me up. And so I was 10 years sober before I went into therapy and I did therapy for uh, 20 years with a psychiatrist. And during that therapy, one of the things he had me do was to go to a hypnotist. And what, what I'm finding is that I'm still finding things out from that trauma as a child. Uh, and even though I found things out, I tend to forget how they affected me unless I uh, associated and connect them to my, uh, to my sobriety and to the steps. Now this is my 12 and 12 and I stole it when it was brand new. So I have used it, but I've changed most of the words in the way I read the steps. Um, and I usually read the third step to demonstrate how I've changed it. Uh, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of sobriety as I understand sobriety because I do not believe in God. I didn't believe in God when I got here. And I still don't believe in God. I think religion is a hell of a good business. And I'm sorry I didn't figure out one so I could get in that business. It's the only issue I have with religion today. Um, but it kind of relates to what I'm running into in, in secular sobriety. 
that there are a lot of books written by people about uh, secular sobriety or uh, living sober without God. And what I find when I read it is I identify with a portion of it, but it also is individuals um, interpretation of what they found from their sobriety. And that reminds me of the big book. Hell, Bill was only three years sober when he wrote the big book. And he was interpreting other people's uh, way of living the steps. And uh, he was so impressed with himself and so sure he is going to make money out of it that he wanted the book name after him, Bill W., instead of Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, one of my babies got me that book on the history of the writing of the book and how many words that were changed. And um, so like I told you, I jump all over the place. When I did, I kept coming to meetings from 67 to 69. What happened to me in 69 that changed me was that the meeting I went to here in San Diego, there was, um, it was my home meeting. It was close to my house. It was a Monday night. And um, I was still struggling with the idea that I wasn't going to drink again. I hadn't drank for a, a period of time, but I still didn't think I was going to stay. And it, it particularly over the God bit. And I was at this meeting and this woman went off about her church and Jesus Christ and the Bible and quoting it. And somebody made the mistake of calling on me after her. And my share was basically what I remember of it is that I thought the Christians needed, I had read the Bible several times and I thought the Christians should be fed to the lions and they were fucking overdue. And uh, so after the meeting, this guy came up to me and I didn't, I knew he, his name was Jimmy, but I didn't know who he was other than I liked his shares because he shared about living sober when he shared. And he didn't preach, he just shared his experience, strength, and hope of how he was living sober. And they called me Dictionary Arlene back then, and he came up to me after the meeting and suggested I look up the word God in my dictionary. And my dictionary had three descriptions, and the one I chose was the chief object of my affections. Because, and I, I write every day, I wrote every day back then, and what I basically wrote was that I knew I had a problem with drinking. I wasn't, I hadn't accepted I was an alcoholic. I only admitted I was an alcoholic at the time. So that was another word I had to change for me to start believing I could stay sober one day at a time. 
because I'd admit to anything that got me attention. And if you go to an AA meeting, you know you got to admit you're an alcoholic if you want to share at these stupid meetings. So I was admitting something I hadn't accepted. Anyway, the chief object of my affections was AA because I knew it, that people were staying sober in those meetings. And I was having trouble reading. I was trying to read the big book, but I'd read a, a line and I couldn't remember what the damn line said. And I'd reread it and reread it. And that's why I started taking out my dictionary and writing words, interpretation of different words. And over the years, I found that there are a lot of different words that mean make a lot of difference to me. And one of them was the word to, T-O. And it simply meant towards in my dictionary. And words like inventory. Um, I looked at the, uh, at the root words of words and inventory came from, meant uh, material on hand was one of the descriptions. And it came from the root word of made, made up in the mind. And uh, what I realized that when I was trying to write my inventory, I was writing things that I thought other people thought of me. And the other big thing that came out of writing an inventory, because the book tells you to write down those names of people, places, and things you have a resentment for. And what I figured out for me is, uh, and I looked up the word resentment and it means anger relived. So I was writing down the name of people I thought I was angry at. And what I found over the years that related back to my childhood was that I was on and one of the reasons I went to a psychiatrist for 20 years, because he couldn't figure, he couldn't get me to get angry. What I found was I wasn't angry at these people. I feared these people. And I was writing down the name of people I feared. And that, uh, the paradox, I love the word paradox. Paradox in my dictionary means contrary to expectation. And so what I got from trying to live these steps, I've never worked the steps. I've read the books. I've gone to book studies for years when we had regular book studies. And I the paradox to a lot of what the steps said uh, taught me a deeper part of myself that um, because my father threatened to kill me because I remembered him killing my mother in front of the house that night, uh, people that should have loved me, I didn't trust, I feared. I couldn't get angry at him as a child because I feared him. And what that transferred to is that when I would beat somebody that loved me, 
I feared them and I ran away from people that loved me. When I got into relationships, friendships or intimate relationships with people that didn't love me, I hung around trying to make them love me. And I did, did crazy things and accepted crazy things to get love from people. And I wore this shirt this morning because I was thinking about how my sobriety has changed me. And the shirt reads, there's a silent voice in the wilderness that we hear only when we are alone, when no one else is around. And I drive to the mountains alone to listen to the silence. I like being alone. I like writing because I can hear myself when I, when I put what I'm thinking down in writing, I'm able to figure out what's none of my business and what's my business. And there, I obviously studied the steps as they were written, but those interpretations and those changes of words, one of my favorite steps is the sixth step. And I didn't mark it, but I, uh, I'll see if I can pull it up here in my book. Uh, I looked up all the words in the sixth step and were meant, the word were, it reads, we're entirely ready to have sobriety, remove all these defects of character. And were me, meant to be and entirely meant wholly and ready meant to pe prepared and two meant towards when I interpret it in my, with my dictionary. And what I found is the paradox to that step was the only way I became entirely prepared to change through sobriety. Uh, and I don't call them defects, I call them defenses because these are the defenses I grew up with to protect me. One of them, my defenses, was my sense of humor. And uh, probably somewhere in my share, you'll get my sense of humor and how sick it can be, but it's mine, <laughs> it's me. And uh, simple things like sobriety is, is uh, just like sex, has to get hard to get good. For some reason, you guys remember that, but so do most of the women. Anyway, uh, the only way I became prepared to change me was to repeatedly do my defensive behaviors. I thought my sense of humor was a defect of character. And what I found with writing and time was that my sense of humor drunk was the defect. Sober, it's different. If saying sex, is, sobriety is just like sex, helps somebody remember that. And I've had people come back to me and even uh, make collages of that. On I've got it somewhere in my house. A guy made 
that sobriety is just like sex because uh, it helped him not drink one day, remembering that. I also have given marbles away. I wouldn't talk to people, so my, my sponsor told me I needed to talk to people and I, could, I didn't want to, I was afraid of people. Um, and one day on the way to a meeting, I found a marble. And I rem it happened to be right after she had told me I needed to talk to people in meetings. And so I went up to a newcomer in a meeting and I handed him the marble and I said, there'll be days when you'll think you've lost all your marbles. Remember you have this one. If you ever decide to drink again, throw it away with the rest of your marbles. And I pointed at my head and what happened is I started collecting marbles. So I would go up to people and giving them away. And I have people that come up to me today and tell me they still have the marble that I gave them. Some of them 40, over 40 years ago. And, uh, and believe me in my sobriety, one of the things I found in my sobriety, um, I like pointing out the fact that I didn't get well in my sobriety. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's a group of people at an AA dance. And that's me. And I don't know if you can tell, but all I have on are tick clips. <laughs> I was 15 years sober and I was going through one of these depression things and um, a gal I'd been dating that I knew it was a bad relationship was, wanted to take me to a dance and she had bought me these leather pants. And uh, we had dances at the Gay Alano Club and the guys, when it would get hot, the guys would take their shirts off to dance. And the women were complaining that it was hot in there and they couldn't take their shirts off. So there I am with leather pants and tick clips walking into an AA dance with 15 years of sobriety. So if you're not having fun yet, hang in there. You could get as crazy as I am. Anyway, I, I, I told you I'd jump all over the place, but words, words are my, are my savior with my sobriety. Cause I keep looking up words and, uh, Anyway, that man that told me to look up the word God, it was Jimmy Burwell. And Jimmy, I found out later, Jimmy was the man that insisted on God as we understand him in the dictionary or in the, in the book, in the writing. Now, Bill attributes Ebony with it from the night he came and Bill was still drinking. But if you read the history, you'll find out that he just put that there as a hind thought because he wasn't um, 
they didn't put Jimmy's story in the first edition of the big book because of him not believing in God. He, his story didn't get in until the second edition of the big book because they didn't think he was going to stay sober. And I can relate to that because if I talk at a meeting that I don't believe in God or say something that indicates I don't believe in God, uh, I invariably I have people that share afterwards that make sure I know I'm going to drink because I don't believe in God. Now I'm 53 fucking years sober and I've got people with six months of sobriety telling me I'm going to drink because I don't believe in God. And that's okay because if they believe in it, it's none of my business. I don't care. I do not care what you believe in or don't believe in. I, the steps, if anything, not the steps, it's my sobriety that changed me. It changed my way of thinking. It changed my way of talking. It changed my character. Sobriety is the power greater than me. Uh, I hear people say that the power greater than them was alcohol. That makes sense to me. It was the power greater in me when I drank. And so it makes sense that sobriety is a power greater than me. And I had to put together some sobriety. But for me, one of the reasons I like to hear how long people are sober is because to me, it's like a chain. I don't care if you're one day sober, 12 days sober, 12 hours sober. 20, 30, 40 years sober, or like me, 50 some years sober. It's that chain that connects us all because I've been, I've been an asshole in so many ways. One of the other things I like sharing is that people judge you on a three minute share. <laughs> <laughs> like and God only knows if I said something that somebody interpreted in their head. So I like sharing this story early on. Well, I didn't have a sponsor for two and a half years. I was so crazy, nobody wanted to talk to me, let alone sponsor me. And when I was two and a half years sober, and I, I got this woman, we identified now she was a straight woman fucking everything in the program and I was a lesbian uh, and I had determined that service work was sleeping with newcomers so I was it kept me sober for four and a half years and they can't drink if you keep their mouth full anyway back to uh, inventories uh, I got mad at some guy in a meeting the way he talked and so uh, my, the sponsor suggested I write his inventory. So I did, and I called her back the next day, and she asked me if I'd put his name at the top of this inventory I wrote, and I said, yes, I did. She said, well, I want you to do one thing for me before you read it to me. She said, cross his name out, write your name there and then read it to me. And so if you're taking my inventory, please enjoy it and cross my name out and read it again. Anyway, 
again about inventories, material on hand, and uh, what I thought other people thought of me. And what came out of some of my inventories was the fact that I wasn't angry at the people on that list as much as I was angry at my behavior. I allowed people to abuse me in so many times, in so many ways. So it wasn't their fault. Why wouldn't they take advantage of me? Uh, I was on a meeting. I don't know how many of you read the Beyond Belief, but yesterday was about sex. <laughs> and I was on a meeting that read that yesterday. So the meeting was about sex. What I know about sex is that um, I haven't had to feed, bring home anything I've had to feed or water for 12 years. At, um, I met my lover on her first day of sobriety. Uh, I went home with her on her third day of sobriety and we were together 38 years, but when she, she was a, a Navy nurse and when she retired, one of our neighbors left some kittens in the garage next door and she brought the kittens home. And she, she was the, that woman that people would leave cats on our doorstep. A cab would bring a cat to our doorstep. Anyway, when she got up to 18 cats in the house, is when I was able to figure out I'm allergic to pussy. So you think you have issues in that when you come in this program, I'm a lesbian allergic to pussy. So anyway, I had to get an apartment. I couldn't live in the house with 18 cats. So, uh, but I went and picked her up every day and we ate together every day uh, for 38 years. Neither of us drank. She never took another drink. She went to her meetings. I went to my meetings. The only ones we went to together was speaker meetings that we went to together. But, um, and she was on hospice for 18 months. They were getting ready to take her off of hospice when she passed away. And I was with her when she passed away. And, um, she reached out and she said, don't leave me. And I said, You're, I'm not gonna leave you. And she had been setting up smoking and uh, I had moved back in the house. I had had somebody come in and wash down the whole house to get rid of the cat as much as they could with 18 in the house. And the back room I had fenced off where the cats couldn't get in. So I was sleeping in the back room on an air mattress and uh, she was calling out and I thought something was wrong with the cats. And I went in and she had been setting up smoking and uh, I was helping her back into bed. And she said, don't leave me. And I said, I'm not gonna leave you. And as she laid, turned around and laid down her head. I heard the breath, the last breath come out of her. And I, uh, I stayed with her and we had a clock. We had 
bought one of those you wind up and it has a thing that swings back and forth in it. And I called my kids, I called hospice to come and they called the funeral people. And I looked over at that clock and I looked at my phone when I'd called hospice that she had passed away and the clock had stopped swinging at 11.11. And that's when she had passed away. And I moved it to my house, my apartment, and I've wound it up several times and it always stops on 11.11. So I know there's a part of her still with me. That's just one of my beliefs. One of the tools that I've used in this program that has worked for me is a gratitude list. And I always start my gratitude with my sobriety, my gratitude list with my sobriety, because I know anything else I put on that list, I can lose if I drink again. It might take a while. And one of the things my, uh, the first sponsor I had did with me is she had me write a gratitude list. And then she told me to cross out two things on the gratitude list and call her and read her the list. And we did that for uh, a a week or so. And uh, she did it to remind me that if I didn't keep my sobriety I was going to lose everything on that list. So I do that sometimes with people I work with to ask them to write a gratitude list. And then, uh, and I work with people that are going to teach me. And I've gotten so many good lessons from people that, that's why I know time is, is important to have but it's not gonna keep me sober. I've watched too many people over the years drink with time. It's not my time that keeps me sober. It's learning to stay in today and deal with today when whatever comes up with it. And I was on a meeting the other night that uh, was reading from emotional sobriety and in it, he, uh, I forget how it reads something about Um, if somebody says something to you, it's none of your business. It's not. Anyway, uh, what I know is that what people do and say is my business because I've got to sort out my thinking and my part in, in what happens. And the example I use is when my partner died, Uh, she had named one of my daughters who we both thought was clean and sober uh, my trustee because uh, when I was 10 years sober I was out fishing with a friend and I slipped on an embankment and I lost my right foot the bones came out of both sides of my right ankle and tore my foot off and uh, So I had been on disability and her lawyer had told her that um, there was something called a, um, I forget what it's called, but it's a trust that protects somebody on disability from 
the government coming in and taking all the money for their health care or any other reason, a special needs trust. So my daughter was named my trustee and uh, it didn't take me too long to figure out my daughter was stealing out of the trust. And uh, she got where uh, she wouldn't take my phone calls, then she wouldn't take my texts, and then she wouldn't take my emails. And she took my money out of my trust and got a lawyer and had the lawyer make out a form letter that I was to fill out, mail it in the mail to her and wait for her to approve or disapprove using my trust money for anything I needed. And when she did that is when I got a lawyer and it took the lawyer 18 months, almost two years before the court removed my daughter because the lawyer was able to prove that she had in fact already stole 153,000 out of this trust. And uh, by the time the court appointed lawyer got control of the trust, the only thing left was a little bit of money in the house because she hadn't figured out how to sell the house yet because part of the trust had been set up to protect her 18 cats. <laughs> so they had a house to live in and I couldn't live with them. So it was in the trust to, anyway, I won't go into that. That's another story. But anyway, emotional sobriety is not saying that it's none of my business what people say or do. I have to be accountable. I have to, I have a wrote down somewhere a, a responsibility is the price I pay for self-respect. I am responsible for the choices I make sober. Every day I have some kind of choice that could in fact affect my sobriety. And if I didn't learn what the principles in the steps meant to me. I, to me, there are five spiritual principles. And we hear the how, honesty, open-minded, and willingness. And I found that, I found because of the way the second step reads, that most people think that the second step is about believing in God. Well, I had papers from the state proving I wasn't sane when I got here. And uh, that was behind my alcoholism. I, how I got here to the first meeting was uh, I was out drinking and my husband found me. And um, instead of taking me home, he took me to another bar and he wasn't gonna let me drink anymore, but he wasn't done drinking. So somebody called the cops on me because I'm loud and I was doing stupid things. I mean, uh, I went to the bathroom and I used one of those paper things you put on a toilet in the bathroom. And as a joke, I put one around my foot and came back into the bar with this paper 
toilet cover on my foot and just to piss off my husband, which I was really good at. Anyway, he tried to take me out of the back of the bar because the people that were working that night didn't want me in there causing trouble. And uh, when we got between, there was a storage area between the axle bar and the exit. I picked up a uh, case of beer. Now I weighed 240 at the time and my husband weighed about 370. And I picked up a case of beer and I ran out and, and when I hit him, the outdoor door was closed. But when all our weight hit, it tore the, bar, the door off the bar and the police were called and they emptied three cans of maize in me before they were able to get me in handcuffs and take me to the psych ward. And in the psych ward is where I went to my first meeting in San Diego. Anyway, I told you I'd jump back and forth. Um, so here I am uh, losing my foot and it happened to be the day before my 10th AA birthday that I lost my foot and I was in the hospital and um, I had helped start a halfway house for gays here in San Diego and I went to a meeting there every day it was close to my house and they had baked a cake because I was going to get my 10-year cake the next day uh, after I lost my foot and one of the guys I worked with was managing the house. And so when the meeting was, before the meeting started, he went in, he had gotten the call that I was in the hospital that I'd slipped on this embankment and lost my right foot. And he went into the meeting and instead of saying I had lost my foot, he said, Arlene won't be here to get her cake today because she had a slip. And he said that, um, that uh, several people in the meeting started crying. And I'm 10 years sober and I didn't know anybody cared about me. And I'm looking at the time and I think we're running out of time. And I have jumped all over the place. I hope that something I said would help somebody stay sober. And I'd like to give you another quote that you'll remember besides sobriety is just like sex. And I probably have a bunch of them, but I can't think of any of them right now. So I will say I am allergic to alcohol. I break out in handcuffs and I hope that you will stay sober one day, one minute at a time, whatever it takes for you to stay, not take that first drink. 